Welcome to the Earth Keepers podcast. This podcast is for people who seek new and better ways to love and care for the Earth. It's a podcast for anyone who is deeply concerned about the harm being done to the environment on a local and global level. It's a podcast that builds community and connection between people of like heart and mind, people who believe that Earth care should be integrated into every aspect of life, and for many in the Earth Keepers community, that includes our spiritual practices. In this episode, we'll be talking to Caroline Pomeroy, director of a global environmental organization called Climate Stewards, based in the UK. Climate Stewards is committed to helping individuals and communities to learn how to reduce their carbon footprint. At the same time, they offer the opportunity to balance our negative impacts on the environment with investment in positive impact projects all around the world through a process called carbon offsetting. In explaining this opportunity to us today, Caroline offers us one more powerful tool in our efforts to become better earth keepers. But we are responsible for, just through our daily lives, burning fossil fuels. And it's possible to measure that amount, to measure the quantity of fossil fuels that we individually and as, as groups are responsible for emitting into the atmosphere. So carbon offsetting, the principle of it is that we are compensating for those emissions into the atmosphere. So if I measure my carbon footprint, I can then find projects which will remove an equivalent quantity of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere to compensate for my emissions. Welcome, friends, to the Earthkeepers podcast. Caroline, thank you so much for taking time to be on the podcast today. I'm very curious about the main topic that we'll consider today, which is carbon offsetting. And I'm sure that many of our listeners are as well. Absolutely. I'm very happy to be here and look forward to talking more about carbon offsetting and climate stewards today. Could you give us a sense of your primary work these days and just a bit of an introduction to Climate Stewards, your organization? So my job is I'm the director of Climate Stewards. I've been doing this job for about eight years now. Climate Stewards is a non-profit organization. It's part of the Arosha network, Arosha family of organizations. We were started by Arosha about 15 years ago, initially really to raise funds for their biodiversity conservation work around the world. They do a number of projects now, but at that point they had a particular project in Ghana and Climate Stewards was focusing on planting trees, indigenous trees with schools and communities in Ghana and through raising funds through carbon offsetting. That's how it started. Since then, things have come along a bit further. We're still part of the Arosha family, although we are a separate NGO, separately registered charity in the UK. We also have branches in the States and in the Netherlands. And we now work with eight partner organizations on the ground. So these are project partners in the developing world where they are carrying out community-based carbon mitigation projects, bringing local benefits to communities there. More generally speaking, let me ask you, what drives you to work for the health of the planet? I mean, why is it that, that you care? I think I've always been interested in the outdoors and the land my first job, my first career was as a chartered surveyor. So that's someone who looks after land and buildings and manages and sustains them for the future, I guess. So I studied a lot of geography and land economy, that kind of thing. 
I've always been quite an outsidey person. I love sailing and walking, cycling, that kind of thing. I think it always made sense to me that we needed to to look after the, the world that we've been given. And that was probably before I even would have called myself a Christian. So I think that for me, that came first. In terms of how that fits with my faith, I guess I was frustrated a bit because I started going to church in my late teens, early 20s. And it, I just never heard these two things mentioned in the same breath. You know, it didn't, didn't come across that in church. I, I suppose I hadn't really realized there was that disconnect. I just thought of them as two separate compartments in my life. There was the sort of outdoors environment and the work-related stuff. And then there was church. And that was all about me and Jesus and me and my neighbor, but not very much about me. In fact, nothing really about me and the, the land, the earth. I guess I was curious and I suppose I was exploring all of this. And I had heard of Arosha, but I didn't know very much about them. We had some friends from our church in London who worked in Arosha, for Arosha in the early days. So I'd heard a bit about them. But I eventually went to a, a day, a workshop day in a church locally, led by a guy called Dave Bookless, who you might have come across, who's one of the leaders of Arosha, where he just explained in very simple terms how our faith motivates us and requires us really to care for care for the earth. And, and that for me was a real sort of light bulb moment. It just made entire sense. And from then on, I've increasingly tried to find ways in which my, I can sort of connect my faith and my care for the planet, both in my daily life and also in the work that I do. You might be interested to know that it was Arusha that made those connections for me as well. At Regent College in Vancouver, when I was a student there, Peter and Miranda Harris were teaching courses, and those courses were enormously influential in, in helping me to integrate, to break down that division between faith life and, and creation care. Let me ask you about your aspirations. When you think about your aspirations for earth care, your impact on the health of the planet, how do you want your life to count most. When you when you think about that, are are there moments you can point to where you were experiencing just your authentic sense of of purpose, your your deepest purpose, I guess? That's a really good question. I think probably the best example I can think of is that a few years ago we had the COP twenty one, the, the the climate talks in Paris. So at that point I was I just started working for climate stewards a couple of years earlier. I got involved in various groups working towards building momentum towards those Paris climate talks, trying to generate interest and a real commitment and an engagement from the Christian community. So I was working with lots of churches and parachurch organizations. And I think I mentioned earlier, I love cycling. So there was, we began to start talking about a pilgrimage to Paris. And there was a walking pilgrimage from London to Paris planned. And I thought, oh, that's going to take three weeks. I haven't got three weeks. And I like cycling anyway. It's much quicker. <laughs> so I started to organize with some friends a cycling pilgrimage. And, and to cut a long story short, we, we did it. I did it from my hometown or a place close to me, Wells Cathedral. I live in Somerset in the west of England. And Wells Cathedral is my local, my nearest cathedral. It's my diocesan cathedral. And we cycled from Wells Cathedral to Notre Dame in Paris. And so I started off, I did it in fact in stages, but I started with a couple of friends locally. And when we got to, to the channel, 
we met up with some different people from all around the UK. So there were about 12 of us in the end who ended up cycling from from the north coast of France down to Paris over the, those few days. And when we got to Paris, we were part of this enormous movement of people, these people who had pilgrimaged to Paris, and the, there were hundreds of them. And it was extraordinary. So that the various groups had, had planned and prepared events. So there were various church services, and there was a point where we we presented a petition to Christina Figueres, who is the woman who was chairing the talks. And it was that was a, really, for me, probably one of the most memorable moments of my Christian life. We were there. In fact, we were due to be outside. I think we were due to be somewhere near the Arc de Triomphe. But because, if you recall, they'd had the Bataclan bombings, and there was a lot of pressure, a lot of control on what we could do. So we ended up in a town hall somewhere in Paris. And there she was on the stage, this little woman. And in a line behind her were all the faith leaders different from different faiths, but predominantly Christian, but all the other faiths represented. And they handed over this petition with two million signatures on it from all around the world, collected in the last two years, I think. And people there who had walked across the Alps, who had cycled from South America, who canoed from, you know, just incredible feats of endurance, people who had really committed. There was a guy called Yeb Sanyo, who was a Filipino. He was the Minister of the Environment in the Philippines. And he had been in the previous climate talks when they had that tsunami. And, and his whole family had disappeared in the tsunami. And apparently, I didn't know the story at the time, but he had broken down in tears and said, you know, you people are talking about some sort of hypothetical situation, but this is really, this is this is happening. So it wasn't a tsunami, it was an environmental related disaster, a climate related disaster. So uh, Christina Figueres was there on the stage with all these different leaders of faith groups. We presented this petition of 2 million signatures from people all around the world who cared about the climate, who were saying to our leaders, this is something we really care about. You know, we want you to make the right decisions here. And as she accepted this petition, she burst into tears. And this is a woman who was about to chair the International Climate Talks the next day. You know, it's quite a powerful moment. And she said, look, you know, I have, you guys have done the walking and the praying and the fasting for the climate. And now it's up to me to deliver the agreement. And as you will know, we at that point were talking and praying about limiting global temperature rises to two degrees above the sort of baseline, pre-industrial levels. And in the end, the agreement came out that there would be a limit of two degrees with an ambition of 1.5, which was way beyond what anybody could have imagined or expected or anticipated. So that was a really significant moment. And she wrote to everybody afterwards, she wrote an open letter to all the people who had walked and prayed and fasted, etc., saying thank you. You know, she said, I think this really made a difference. I think the people in those negotiating rooms were aware of the civil society influence of which the Christian group was probably the biggest single group, as it were, and how much impact that had had on their decision making. So I thought, you know, that to me tells a real story of, of the importance of doing what we do as a, a global movement. So you work globally, you work with a lot of different cultures, traditions, faiths. I am intrigued by what might be happening in other faiths. I'm familiar with movements among Christ followers to think more about creation care, to prioritize earth care. But I'm not as familiar with what might be going on in other faith traditions. I'm wondering, is there anything in that that gives you hope that you've heard about, examples, stories, people that you've met? 
Well, certainly in the UK, we have a group called Faith for the Climate. It started off as just a Christian group, but it has evolved into a multi-faith group. And it's really interesting to see, I go to the meetings from time to time, how the other faith groups, all the major faith groups have really taken this up. Obviously, there are fewer of them in, in our context, you know, nationally, in terms of just the numbers. And they are probably less developed, I think, in their thinking and their practice, just because they've come a bit later to this whole thing. Although I think in, in many of their sacred scriptures, the care for the earth is definitely there. But I think in terms of the practicalities of how that works, that's more of a challenge. I think also there's a conversation in the UK about how it is generally more difficult to engage with ethnic minorities in the UK who are often from other faith traditions on creation care. It's just not part of the culture. But it's changing. And certainly this year, we've got the, we're building up to the COP the United Nations Environment Talks, which are due to be in Glasgow in Scotland in November. And there's a huge movement of people trying to raise awareness of that and use that to sort of reflect back, I guess, into the faith communities, the church and other faith groups to engender action in those groups. So I think it's, it's small, but it's growing in all of the main faith traditions, certainly in the UK. How would you describe your relationship to nature? And if there's a spiritual component of that, what is that like? What is your, your connection to nature in terms of your spirituality in particular? I'm very lucky. I live in the countryside. You know, I'm particularly aware of that in throughout. We've had a very long lockdown in the UK. I'm very aware of how lucky I am to be able to just walk out into my garden, walk out into the fields next door, take my dog, who you've heard earlier, for a walk. And I love gardening. I love growing food. We keep some chickens and sheep. And, and so we, I feel I have a, a close relationship with nature. One of the projects I started this year was to take a series of photographs around our place on the first of each month to try and kind of record the changes. I see God in nature, I think. I, I, I love that phrase from Martin Luther, who talks about God's book of words and his book of works and how nature reveals God. We have a lovely lady, elderly Catholic member of our home group, our Bible study group, and she talks about meeting God in the garden. And I love that idea. She has a beautiful garden. Uh, feels like you've gone to heaven when you go there. So, I, yeah, I love my daily walks outside of just noticing the differences. And, and I often pray. I do a lot of talking, talking to God as I walk. So I find nature very healing and reviving. Coming back to the work of climate stewards. For those who aren't familiar with carbon offsetting, could you give us a, a bit of an overview of what exactly carbon offsetting is and, and how it works? We start from the point where uh, we as individuals and organizations in, I was going to say in the West, but in any part of the world, we have a carbon footprint. We are responsible for, just through our daily lives, burning fossil fuels. So that might be through driving, through flying, through heating our homes, through our food consumption, through all the other stuff that we buy. And an enormous proportion of that is powered by fossil fuels, by coal and oil and gas. It's changing, obviously, as renewable energy becomes more widespread, but, but essentially that's, that's the bottom line. And it's possible to measure that amount, to measure the quantity of fossil fuels that we individually and as, as groups 
are responsible for emitting into the atmosphere. And as we all know, that causes too much carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, causes global warming, causes climate change. So carbon offsetting, the principle of it is that we are compensating for those emissions into the atmosphere. So if I measure my carbon footprint, and in the UK, my footprint is likely to be around six, seven, eight, nine tons of carbon dioxide per person per year. In the States, it would be about double that. I can then find projects which will remove an equivalent quantity of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere to compensate for my emissions. So they will either remove it, and the removal comes through either through technologies, or in our case, in climate stewards' case, we would be removing it by by sponsoring, by funding tree planting. Obviously, as trees grow, they absorb CO2. Or by reducing the, what would normally be emitted, so the reduction in emissions from using clean technologies or more efficient technologies. So again, climate stewards funds water filters, cook stoves, solar schemes. So these are enabling less carbon to go into the atmosphere to do the same activity. And then we, what we do is we count and we measure those reductions and we balance those with our emissions. And that's that cycle, that sort of virtuous circle is the offset, the offsetting process. So logistically speaking, how would a person or an organization access the services that Climate Stewards is providing? What's the actual mechanism of that? So if you find the Climate Stewards website and you click on offset, you will find a carbon calculator. So that is an online tool which enables you to enter the carbon emissions from all your different activities. And it's got different tabs. So it starts off with flights and then land transport, home energy, consumption, etc. And you basically add those up for your household or yourself individually, and that will tell you tell you your footprint. Then it will give you an opportunity it will say, would you like to offset this? So would you like to spend some money which will pay for those activities which take that CO2 out of the atmosphere? The current price is $26 per tonne, US dollars per tonne. That's, that's the cost to offset those tonnes. And if you, so if your footprint's 10 tonnes, then it's going to be $260, for example. So that's how it works. It's pretty simple. And then you can pay via various online payment mechanisms. Now, is it really possible to gauge that equivalence to know, for example, how much carbon is being removed from the atmosphere through the activities that the offsetting is funding? So we work really hard with our partners. We have developed something called the Climate Steward Seal of Approval, which is our way of counting and measuring carbon savings from these different projects. We work through trusted Christian partners on the ground. We have a strong relationship with them. Many of them are actually Arosha organizations or other ones connected with churches and mission agencies, etc. And we work with them to do surveys of, of what you know. What's the baseline? What, what what's the starting point? So, for example, in, in Uganda, we're working with our partner, Arusha Uganda, to deliver biosand water filters. So these are big water filters which enable a household to get clean water in in large quantities. Arusha Uganda have been doing this project for many years before we even came along. So we. Were able to ask them to go out and survey the households, which where they had filters, to work out what what behaviour has changed. What were they doing beforehand? How much fuel were they using beforehand, on average? 
and how much fuel are they now using now that they don't have to boil their water to make it clean for drinking? That's where the difference comes. We also could send them back to communities where they had delivered filters in the past over the last 10 years, previous 10 years, and look at how many filters were still there, which ones had broken, which ones had fallen out of use, which ones had got lost, you know, all that people move house, that kind of stuff. So what's the attrition rate? So we can then make a really good estimate of, you know, if we give a filter today, how much carbon will it save over its life of, say, 10 years? And what will we have to do to make sure that happens? For example, what we do is we we fund a lot of training. We fund, I think, people call buddies. So these are people in the community. They might be, they've probably already got a filter. They might be an early adopter, someone who just picks it up a little bit quicker. But So then they're given a small salary, I mean, a really tiny amount of money, just to be the person responsible for keeping an eye on maybe 10 of their closest neighbours to make sure that if their filter breaks, they come and talk to them and say and find out how to fix it quickly. If there's a big problem, they'll phone the, the office and get someone else to help. If someone's moving house, okay, what's going to happen to the filter? Will they give it to the next person? Will they take it with them? So that kind of stuff, just these little interventions, which ensure that the technology is well used and monitored. We also do a lot of, our partners do a lot of monitoring. So each year they're monitoring back to us how many filters are in use. They'll do some tests on on how much water's been filtered, all those kind of things, just to check that the that our estimates were correct and if necessary we adjust the figures up and down we we include a lot of buffers so insurance amounts so we 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 take very cautious estimates we ask lots and lots of questions about the context in which our projects are working so we include questions around if you're doing tree planting you know land ownership how can we make sure those trees are going to survive they're not going to be cut down what's the thinning regime if you're going to have to thin them what about how you're going to cope with watering and there's no water what about pests and diseases what about fire what about fencing so the goats don't eat them all of those questions we ask lots and lots and lots of questions and and we we have a very close relationship with our partners to ensure that whatever thing we're paying for is as as well designed and thought through and carefully monitored so that those savings are at least what we have anticipated. So we tend to take very conservative estimates all the way through to make sure that that carbon will be removed through that project. I picked up on the word relationship that you used when you talked about your partners. That makes me wonder, is that perhaps a distinctive of climate stewards over, say, many of the other carbon offsetting organizations that that consistency of relationship that allows accountability. I think you're right. I think that's one of our, our USPs, as it were. We have very strong relationships with all our partners. They're, as I've mentioned before, they're, many of them are part of the Arosha family, who we have a sort of network of relationships with. We just work very hard at developing and building those relationships, at having third parties or second parties who sort of cross-reference to make sure that we're working with really good, trusted partners. We started a network where we have in the autumn, thanks to lockdown and Zoom and everything else, we had um, a global partner conference on Zoom. So starting to connect them all to each other so that they can learn best practice from each other. They can share experiences, problems, solutions, etc. And that's been a really, really helpful thing to do with just things like WhatsApp groups, very simple stuff. 
So building that trust and that relationship and that accountability, we are, you know, we're very hot on accountability. We ask a lot of questions and we are constantly in dialogue with them. What are the other distinctives of climate stewards that you would point to that sets it apart as an organization? I think our Christian distinctiveness is is unique as far as I know. I don't know any other organizations which focus on carbon in every sense of the word. So we talk a lot about, as we've talked about earlier, about how to measure your carbon footprint, how to reduce it, and then how to offset it. We are very strong on the theology of creation care. You know, why are we doing this? What, when we are encouraging organizations, we work with a lot of churches, for example, who want to measure and reduce and then offset their carbon footprint so that they can become carbon neutral. And I think that they like the fact that we, as Christians, we understand why we're doing it and we can articulate that and we encourage them to do the same. I think that's probably our biggest distinctive, plus the fact that we do, as we've said, work with really quite small organizations on the ground deliberately because we feel they're closer to the ground. More of the money is going to the hands of the community rather than to the sort of institutions around that. And so we have that strong level of accountability and trust. We've been in conversation with Caroline Pomeroy, Director of Climate Stewards, As earthkeepers, we are always seeking practical ways to care for the planet's ecology. And of course, that involves proactively reducing the negative impacts of our everyday choices. If you would like to gauge the impact of your own choices, Climate Stewards provides an online tool by which you can calculate your carbon footprint. Just go to climatestewards.org for a step-by-step guide to finding that number, as well as useful strategies for reducing it. This is a great way to involve friends and family members in promoting environmental awareness, and it's simple enough to do with young children as well. And if you find that restricting carbon use in your lives doesn't make your footprint small enough, you'll find opportunities to offset your carbon use on the same website. Again, just go to climatestewards.org and also check out this episode's show notes for more information. Now, let's get back to our conversation with Caroline Pomeroy. I wonder about the other things that Climate Steward does for people. It sounds like there's a pretty powerful education component, awareness component. What other things does Climate Stewards do then to to help move people toward awareness of, of their carbon use, for example, and awareness of the options for offsetting those? On our website, we have the tools, the online tools. We also go and talk with churches, with any Christian organization or non-Christian. We don't just work with Christian organizations, but that tends to be where we most of our work is done. We have a really interesting tool, which is the most basic of all. We call it our Duplo Carbon Footprint Calculator. So Duplo is like a giant Lego, and we get people to build their carbon footprint with Duplo. It's a really, really powerful way of people seeing what their footprint looks like and seeing, okay, if I start flying here, 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 this will be my bit of, this is my footprint from flying. If I eat a bit less meat, I can reduce this one. If I buy less stuff, I can reduce that one. If I can find a way of traveling without my car, maybe catch public transport, get a bicycle, whatever. It's just a very, we find that people, to talk about tons of, of carbon dioxide, you know, a ton of a gas is quite a strange concept. So trying to sort of demystify that and get people to visualize it is very helpful. So we do 
quite a lot around that. We've done a lot of webinars and seminars and talks over the last year online. And we also, again, we we work with churches and Christian organizations on the theology side of things, the creation care side of things. We work closely with Arosha and Eco Church in the UK. So these are churches which are on a on a journey towards being better at creation care in all the areas of their church life. And so we help with providing the, the tools to calculate and reduce the footprint, carbon footprints, and some of the reasoning around why we would do that. So I will be honest with you. I listen to you describing your idyllic setting with the sheep and chickens and wandering the fields and my heart aches. And that is because for the last 10 years or so, up until COVID restrictions, I've traveled to the UK at least once a year. Oxford in particular, it's my place to regroup, <laughs> recreate and rest. I do work there as well, but for me, it's kind of a, a center of my life in many ways. So I've not gone there this year because of COVID, but the pause has actually caused me to really rethink whether I actually need to make that a regular part of my life in the future. And that is mostly because I've become more aware of the true cost to the earth of air travel. So I here also you're talking about carbon offsetting and it's super intriguing it gives me hope uh, maybe maybe i could actually travel without as much guilt <laughs> but there is also part of me that wonders is carbon offsetting real in other words is it for some people perhaps just a way of assuaging guilt of somehow justifying the fact that in fact we are doing damage to the earth by flying. There's really no way around that. But there's a word that I've heard you use before, greenwashing, which I find very intriguing. And I'm wondering, how do we think about that? How do we think about the, the real impact of carbon offsetting? And are we in danger of using carbon offsetting really just as a justification for our bad habits? So Climate Steward's strapline is to reduce what you can and offset the rest. So we would always say that we should look at our carbon footprint and consistently, you know, constantly endeavour to reduce it through all parts of our lives. We also recognise that we live in the 21st century and people will fly. And flying, as you, as you rightly point out, is the big baddie. It's the one that we just can't get around in terms of its impact on the environment. Yes, of course, planes are getting a bit cleaner and you know that kind of stuff, but essentially it's, it's always going to be, have a big impact on the planet. So I think it's a bit of both. I think we, we all need to examine everything that we do and see how we can reduce our impact on the planet to live more lightly. But I think that there will be times when we choose to fly. And sometimes we fly because we have family and friends around the world. And that's increasingly common. We live in a global village. There's an English environmental writer called George Monbiot who calls, calls those love miles. He also calls offsetting a papal indulgence. <laughs> so effectively, you're paying someone else to do your dirty work. And I think to answer that question, perhaps, about is it worth doing, I think that one of, the, one of our tests for our own offset projects is that they must bring genuine local benefits to the people on the ground who are, who are carrying out the work, as it were, who are implementing the projects. They must be seeing healthier lives through perhaps less smoke in their house, through cleaner water, 
They must be seeing a better environment through trees, indigenous trees planted, through new sources of income, through fruiting trees, that kind of stuff. There need to be clear advantages to the local people on the ground implementing the projects over and above any carbon saving that's going on. In a sense, that's just a funding mechanism which works, which means that we have a way in which we can fund them. But that's not the reason why most people are doing those projects. Most of those local people are choosing to do those projects because they bring them local benefits. So that's that's our our bottom line in terms of what we think is a good project. Your answer brings up another question for me, and that is there must then be ways that are worse than others in terms of carbon offsetting. You're talking about the valuation being based on on whether it makes people's lives better, those who are actually doing the carbon removal activities. I'm guessing that there might be other organizations that for whom that is not of value, and perhaps planting a hundred trees as part of a a tree plantation would work just as well in terms of their value system. Does that happen? Sure. I think there were some really bad offset projects a few years ago, and and that brought offsetting into, gave it a bad name, I think. And and, and a lot of people sort of decided they really didn't trust it. You know, they, they weren't convinced there were some, you know, trees that didn't exist, that kind of thing. I think, as far as I know, most current offset projects, which are regulated by things like the Gold Standard and Vera and Plan Viva. There are a number of international standards which regulate offset projects. And I think that they're all good. And they do insist on on more than just the carbon removal. They will all be concerned about other the impact on people's lives. But I think that many of them will involve very large plantations of often non-Indigenous trees, yeah, we, we've seen examples of poorly implemented projects, which I think is that it comes back to that relationship thing you said earlier. I think if you try to do it on a bigger scale and you have less contact with the local community, the danger is that the Western organization has this clever idea, let's use, let's deliver lots of people with a certain type of water filter, for example. And I can think of an example which we saw a couple of years ago where that filter just didn't work and they were just abandoned all over the place. And there was very little follow-up and very little training, etc. So clearly there are good projects and bad projects. And I think it's worth looking into, if anybody's considering carbon offsetting, it's definitely worth asking questions about those types of things. How do they ensure that the money gets to where it's supposed to be, and particularly the long-term stuff? Because a lot of these projects, they require a long-term commitment, long-term investment to see the benefits, the carbon savings into the future. I appreciated your point earlier that while carbon offsetting should be part of our toolkit in terms of of earthkeeping, the preferred approach would be to simply put less carbon into the atmosphere in the first place. And I like very much the fact that this tool that you spoke of that I'm actually going to be recommending to everyone by which you measure your carbon footprint actually helps you to understand how you are contributing to carbon emissions. Like, what, what, what are the things that you do? You just offhandedly mentioned meat consumption. And for many people, that would not be something that comes to mind as an activity that, that has a carbon cost. 
I'm wondering when you talk about to people about reducing their carbon footprint, what are the ways that you encourage them to make a beginning? What are the places they can begin to really reduce their their carbon footprint in kind of low hanging fruit ways, ways that will yield big results from the from the start? I think the biggest impacts generally will be how we heat, how we run our homes. So can we switch? One of the things we, almost the first thing we would recommend to anybody in the UK, certainly, and I'm pretty sure it'll be the same in the States, is to switch to a renewable electricity provider. So generally speaking, if you buy your electricity from a company, they will have different tariffs and, and there will be a green tariff, a renewable tariff, which means that the electricity has been generated by wind and solar and other renewable forms of energy. That's just a, such an easy win. Um, sometimes you'll find you're actually saving money if you're switching to a better tariff or a more modern tariff. It may cost you a little bit more, but it's a great deal cheaper than, say, putting solar panels on your own roof. Now, that may be possible, but often it's not for one reason, or it's expensive, it's difficult, it's time consuming. But just to switch to a renewable energy tariff is is an incredibly efficient way of doing it. And just to reduce your consumption, we have to do two things. You know, One is we have to reduce our consumption in every area, and then we have to make it renewable, whatever we're doing. So cutting out drafts, insulating your home, using the air conditioner less, drying your clothes on the line, all those kind of day-to-day stuff, things that people perhaps just think of as normal in terms of behavior, but also reducing our consumption of electricity and energy by insulation, by turning the thermostat down, by wearing another sweater, those kind of basic things, depending on what climate you're in, obviously. So our household energy is one area we can all usually do something about. Our travel is another one. Again, I know that the States is a big country and domestic flights are quite a big part of many people's lives. We certainly encourage people to look at alternatives, so trains and buses and driving and driving with a car, if you've got more than a couple of people in it, is often the most fuel efficient way to go. But trains and buses are obviously a great thing to do. I mean, for myself, I've traveled all over Europe by train. I've been to Russia by train. I've been to Croatia by train. I've been many times to Southern Europe by train. It's a great experience. It's, it takes a bit longer, but you, you see and you appreciate the world around you. You meet people. It's just very different. So definitely thinking about those flights. As we said, flights are, are, are one of the big ones. And looking at other options for public transport, for cycling, for walking, local trips. You know, do I have to get in the car every time I want to go to the local shop? Could I walk? Those sorts of things. Little changes that sort of nudge our behavior. So I think the energy consumption in the household and travel are probably the two biggest single single items. And then, as you say, food. Essentially, a heavy meat diet or an average meat diet is really quite a lot of meat. And there's a lot of carbon emissions associated with producing meat, transporting it, delivering it, etc. I like the idea of eating lower down the food chain. So eating less meat and more plants, basically. It doesn't mean to say we have to eat no meat at all, but if we can eat better quality meat, so it's been produced locally, in more natural conditions, less intensively raised, that will mean fewer additional uh, inputs into its feedstock. And eating more plants and pulses and grains, less dairy, all of those things will have a significant impact on, on, on our carbon footprint. One of the things that EarthKeepers values highly is, is community activity. 
We find that it's easier sometimes to make these changes when you're thinking about them with other people, because communities help you to see things that you wouldn't see. Community activity makes it possible to achieve larger goals, maybe more systemic goals. I'm curious about your experience with community mobilization that works toward Earth Care. What can people do to actually? Gather people around the cause of of caring for the earth or working against climate change. What are the the possibilities for for doing things together that you have seen? I think, as you say, it's often it's just more fun to do things together, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think that eating together, if you're in a church community, for example, you might say, "Okay, our next shared meal, let's try and buy." more local food. Let's have less meat. Let's think about the tableware. Are we using disposable plastic stuff or are we using things that we can wash up and reuse? Just really simple stuff. And then people get quite creative and sometimes quite competitive as well. And that's a nice thing to do. I think some groups of people will set themselves targets on reducing their footprint, for example, even just starting to measure it. So the eco-church system, which is a great way of getting churches engaged and, and often individuals will all go home and say, okay, let's let's work out what our energy consumption, not just the church building, but what about us at home? And then start comparing that and sort of sharing ideas about how to reduce it. Things like transport to church. I mean, just a really simple idea. We live in a rural area here. Lots of people drive to church every Sunday on their own or maybe with one other. So could we just be a little bit more organized about sharing lifts, sharing rides? Okay, post-pandemic at the moment, we're not allowed to. But generally speaking, it's a lovely way. You meet your neighbors, you get to know people, you save fuel. It's just a win-win. And I think there are so many things which, for me, again, cycling, come back to cycling. I love cycling because I, you know, I get some exercise, I get fresh air, I see the, the change in the seasons, the environment around me. I can stop and chat to people if I see my friends in the street, lots of benefits, quite apart from saving energy. So I think doing things together is definitely a great, a great way to start. You would probably agree with me when I say that earth keeping can be hard work. And I like this idea of, of doing it with others because I think that does make it more fun and certainly more, more doable when we remember that we're not on our own. When you think about your work, when you think about the challenges that we face, when you think about our trajectory in terms of climate, where do you find your hope? I think I find it in seeing a lot at the moment, people who have never taken this stuff seriously, beginning to take it seriously. You know, even earlier this afternoon, I had a long conversation with a big Christian relief and development organization based in the US saying, we recognize we need to be better stewards. You know, we are writing an environmental policy. We want to be carbon neutral. We want to measure the footprint of all our offices around the world. We want to look at the way we do all our work, not just in terms of their offices in the US and wherever, but also the the projects they're doing on the ground. What's the climate impact of those projects, positive or negative? the real holistic view of of what their work is. And this is an organization which previously wouldn't, even three, four years ago, wasn't, it wasn't on their agenda. 
I've had conversations like that a lot recently in the last few months. I think it's rising up the agenda very fast. I think the Christian church is really waking up to its its responsibilities and the opportunities it presents in terms of that, that witness, that green witness. I think if we as the church are seen to be caring for the world around us, people notice that and that makes sense because they're caring for the world around them. So why aren't we? I had a wonderful conversation many, many years ago now with a friend of mine. We'd gone to a, a climate march, so a demonstration in London. We were walking down Piccadilly, one of the big streets in the centre of London, with our banners and everybody else. And, and, and I'd gone with my sustainable group from my local town. So they weren't necessarily Christians. And I was walking with my friend, who's definitely not a Christian. And she looked around and she saw all the different placards and banners. And she saw Christian Aid. She saw Tear Fund. She saw CAFOD, the Catholic one. She saw Operation Noah. All these different banners all around her. It's like campaigning on climate change. And she said, my goodness, I'd never realized. I didn't know that Christians cared about this stuff. She said, if I was a Christian... If I was, it would be the most obvious thing in the world to care for the world that God had made. And I've never seen Christians doing that. I've never heard them doing that. I've never been aware that Christians care. You know, I think that if for nothing else, for no other reason than our witness, I think it's a great thing to be doing. I see hope in that sense. I see that the church is waking up and the church is the biggest grassroots movement in the world. We've been in conversation with Caroline Pomeroy, Director of Climate Stewards. If you want to know more about her work and about changes you can make to work for a lifestyle that's closer to carbon neutral, please go to the show notes on our podcast website at circlewood.online forward slash earthkeepers. And if you want to leave a note or ask a question about this episode, shoot me an email at earthkeepers at circlewood.online or you can leave a voice message on the podcast website. Earthkeepers podcast explores ways in which we can change ourselves, our communities, and our cultures to help us to care for the earth in holistic and regenerative ways. Through curated conversations, we highlight the wisdom of thought leaders and change agents who are making a difference and showing us a way forward. When Earthkeepers stand together, they amplify the impact of their resistance against environmental injustice and multiply their efforts for renewal and restoration. I am Forrest Dinsley, your podcast host. Our executive producer is James Amidon. Our producer is Dave Olfers. Forrest Reed is our editor and the creator of our original music. Our research assistant is Rochelle Nordman. And Jessalyn Megerly is our social media director. Thank you, friends, for listening. And please join us next time on the Earthkeepers podcast. <laughs>